Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Friends, it's wonderful this morning to be able to give this first of three sermons this week on leadership in the Pentateuch, so leadership in Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers. That's the sermon of each morning this week. And this morning, as you'll have noticed, it's it's, uh, Exodus chapter 29, at least a few verses that have been read, though I'll be uh, going a little bit wider than the verses we've read to help us set the scene. So let me pray. It is so wonderful, Heavenly Father, that we can be together this morning in this way. And we ask you, please, to help us grow as Christians, but to grow as leaders amongst your people as well this week, that we might know your heart, your will and your ways, and grow into all that you have for us. And do this, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we've been talking and thinking about leadership in crisis because we've been confronting the great pandemic. And it's easy, in a sense, to think about leadership in really crisis-oriented ways. But, of course, we all lead in times that are not crisis-oriented. We've got to learn the deep reason, the deep themes of leadership, not just how to manage in a crisis. Some leaders, of course, like crises and they invent crises because their own leadership leadership strengths come to the surface in a crisis. But that's actually a very negative way to think about what a leader is, what a leader does. A leader is bigger than an emergency. Now, of course, there are several emergencies that the people of God faced in the Pentateuch as they were brought out of Egypt as they came to settle the promised land. But despite those, those crises that we read about, the Pentateuch gives us a growing picture of what leadership is like in a new nation with new structures, with new goals, with a new vision. There are, of course, the crises that the leaders have to face, But the Pentateuch gives us not just response to crises, but help to structure leadership when there's not a crisis as well. And in this particular passage, as we learn about the priests, their ordination, we see that they have regular responsibilities, daily offerings to make morning and night, as well as other special offerings according to need or according to the presenting crisis. The priests, as archetypal leaders in Exodus, have regular responsibilities as well as crisis responsibilities. Interestingly, the category of priest is the chief category for leadership in all of the Pentateuch. When you hear the word priest, start thinking leader. Now, of course, the priests 
in these passages around Exodus 29 had lots of things to do. They had to provide bread for the bread of the presence. They had to wear certain kinds of clothes, provide oil for the lamp, offer burnt offerings or incense. They collected tax, for example. They did lots of particular tasks, but it would be a wrong application to look at those particular tasks and say, what I need to be as a leader is to mimic them. A wrong application would be to go straight from their tasks to my tasks or from their clothes to my clothes or from their language to my language for ministry. In fact, uh, it's a very crude way of thinking about the Bible generally, not to actually think of the Old Testament in relation to Christ in the first instance. But even when you look at these texts, the priests bust through categories because we learn in uh, Exodus 29 verse 6 that the priests are to have a turban set on their head and a holy crown placed on the turban. The priests are kind of like kings. And tomorrow we'll discover that the priests are kind of like prophets as well. We can't narrow down the job description of the priest too narrowly around offering sacrifices. And even if we did, to mimic them without thinking of their responsibilities understood in the light of Christ would be a mistake. So what is the job description of the priest? Well, in these beautiful words at the end of Exodus 29, we see something of their role in the life of the people of God. So I'm reading from Exodus 29, 42. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where the Lord says, I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel. So the Lord is saying he'll meet with the priests, but more than that, he'll, through the priests, meet with the people of Israel. And the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. God will turn up and dwell there. 44, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. That's the central verse in this paragraph. 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. God has set up his priests to enable him to dwell with his people. They shall know, verse 46, that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The priests are hearing from the Lord and the priests are helping the people to know that God has come close, that God is dwelling in the midst of his people. The Lord is meeting with his people at the tent and the priests are a sign of the Lord having come close. They hear the Lord and they want to explain and perform actions that help the people know that God wants to be close to them. 
for God bringing the people out of Egypt wasn't merely to rescue them from from Pharaoh's power. The goal of bringing the people out of Egypt is that they might meet the Lord at Sinai, that they might live with the Lord in the promised land. God's presence, God's closeness is what the priest's job description essentially involves. Of course, this is not unlike lessons we learn from the New Testament. For example, Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's not just that we've left behind the kingdom of darkness, but something positive, we've come to dwell in the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Or from 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's not just that Christ suffered for our sins. He suffered for our sins in order that we might be brought close to the Lord. So how would you answer the question, what is the priest in the book of Exodus? The way I try and capture their job description is to describe them as guardians of grace. They're guardians of grace, or in other language, they're custodians of closeness. Their job is to help the people know God's grace. Their job is to help the people know that the Lord has come close. They kind of stand between the holy God and the sinful people. They're kind of like the cartilage between two bones. Bone on bone hurts. The way the Lord has built our bodies is to place cartilage between the bones to cushion the impact. That's exactly what the priests are doing. They're cushioning the impact of the close encounter between the holy God and his sinful people. If you look out in concentric circles from this passage in Exodus 29, you'll see that before the ordination of the priests, there's description at the end of chapter 27 about oil for the lamp. Or the passage immediately after ours in 29, you'll see that their responsibility is to uh, burn incense on the altar immediately before and immediately after the description of the ordination of the priests, we're told that the priests have a job to keep the lamp burning and the incense burning. Both the lamp and the incense are on gold tables near the Holy of Holies. In a sense, both the lamp and the incense remind us of God having come close. His light has come near. And the possibility that the people of God can offer their worship symbolized in the incense. The priests have responsibility for helping people to know that God has come close and the responsibility for helping the people know that their worship is pleasing to the Lord. 
But of course, to get to the Holy of Holies, the holy place where the tables are of gold, the priests need to pass by the bronze altars in the courtyard, the places of sacrifice. But the places of sacrifice are not the end in itself. They're the means to the ends. The priest passes by the places of sacrifice that the priest might enjoy the Lord's presence in the holy place. Jesus is saviour so that he can be our Lord. Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice, but that's not the end in itself. It's so that we might know his closeness. We might know the Lord in our hearts. Now, of course, the priests had a daily grind. They had to offer sacrifices. They had to keep the lamp trimmed and the incense burning. Lots of their tasks were repetitive, gruelling, a daily grind. But beyond that daily grind was their chief responsibility to be guardians of grace. It's interesting if you get to do evangelical history at Ridley, that one of the biggest issues in the great revivals of the 18th century was not an understanding of particular doctrinal concerns, but the great revivalists wanted all the time for people to know this truth that the God has come close. The power of godliness was the leading phrase, or in Jonathan Edwards' language, religious affections meaning you should know in your heart that the Lord is close. So I ask again the question, what is the priest? When I was having my ordination interviews so many years ago, this is exactly the question that was put to me in one of my uh, first interviews. Reese, what is the priest? I think the person asking the question uh, wanted a particular kind of answer, to tell you the truth. But with a few years' reflection, these are the kinds of things that I want for my ministry and I want for yours as well. What's your job description as leaders amongst God's people? You, my friends, are guardians of grace. Your job is to help people understand grace. Your job is to teach people grace, whether in your youth group, your children's program, your home group, or in a sermon. You are to exemplify grace in your personal, your closest relationships. You're to build a culture of grace in your sphere. Some years ago, uh, when I was uh, running Uni Church at St Jude's, we did a, a weekend away on mentoring, and we thought very carefully about how we'd structure it and how we teach on it, and how we give people opportunities to practice it. But as it turned out, there were almost no mentoring relationships that emerged from the weekend, and quite rightly, I was disappointed. The next year for the same conference, we were doing a conference on sexuality and marriage and sexuality. 
which we did every every three years. And for that conference, we put a lot of time and effort not into thinking just about the content, but in how we could build a culture in the congregation where honesty and accountability were practised, where this was something we prized. And remarkably, after that weekend, the year after the conference on mentoring, so many mentoring relationships began. But we weren't talking about mentoring. We were actually talking about marriage and sexuality. But it was that we so tried to build a culture of honesty and accountability that mentoring naturally uh, flowed out. We need to build a culture of grace, a culture in which honesty and accountability are offered because that's what we are as leaders, right? Guardians of grace. We need to preach Christ, help people get their eyes off themselves and onto him. When we disagree, we need to disagree in ways that are gracious. Our culture is increasingly harsh and judgmental. How wonderful then that our churches can be a refuge in which grace is prized and grace is experienced. Ministry is not about imposing authority, but at its heart, ministry is about cultivating grace. In fact, that's why we have Ridley Chapel every day, right? The danger of an academic environment like Ridley is that we lose grace because we're thinking about assessments and tasks. But how wonderful then that we can withdraw for an hour each day to chapel and practice again building a culture of grace. For a culture of grace flows out of the means of grace. A culture of grace flows out of the means of grace. What better way to build a culture of grace at Ridley than for God to give us his grace each day in chapel? So what would you say to that senior leader who asked me, what is the priest? There might be lots of technical answers you could give if you're an Anglican from the prayer book. But in the end, my answer should have been something like this. The priest is the person who oversees the means of grace in the local church. Brothers and sisters, may this lesson be etched deeply in our hearts and minds this morning. The job of the church is to be a kingdom of priests commending the gospel of grace to the world. So let me pray. Please do this, we ask. Heavenly Father, through the merits of your Son and by the power of your Spirit, may we know this day your closeness and commend it to others. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.